It is a real joy to be with you. I always look forward to this time of the year because I hope to get a call. I think so much of this congregation, as I was telling someone just before we began tonight, it's a special place because it's full of so many special people, many of whom I know from years of teaching at Alabama Christian Academy and currently Faulkner University, but also just because of the reputation that you have here, even if I don't know you personally. So I appreciate the chance to be with you. The topic that I've been assigned tonight is knowing God's plan. And the description that was given in the the, uh, list of topics said this, Studying and knowing God's Word helps us know God's plan for the church in a world of virtual confusion. Well, I've opted to kind of retitle that slightly, God's plan and our response. Because it's very important that we not only know what God's plan is, in this world in which we're living, but also that we know the right way to respond. Did you ever think we would have lived through what we've lived through the past year? No. To imagine that we went through a pandemic, and hopefully we're nearing the other side of it now, but a pandemic that did so many things to shut the world down, not just our country, but the world All of a sudden, we weren't able to shake hands or to give hugs. We had to wear masks. We couldn't even sometimes go out of our house at certain times of the night because we had a curfew in place. Would you have ever thought we would have endured something like that? Not to mention the number of deaths that we lost, lives that were precious to us because of it. Well, let me ask you this. Did you ever think we would live to see the day we would be living in a nation that's in the condition our nation is currently in? We are truly, as one preacher said, seeing before our very eyes what man is like with absolutely no fear of God whatsoever. And it's a very scary thing. Who would have ever thought we would have lived to see a time when good is called evil, truly, in the truest sense, and not just in one arena, but several. Or where what is called evil by God is considered to be good. And not only that there are people in our country, we'll just focus on our country tonight, though it surely extends beyond our country, but not only are people espousing and holding to these views, but they're doing so unashamedly. More so than ever before. It's amazing to me to consider how quickly our nation has descended morally. Is it to you? Think about the Brady Bunch. Not so long ago in the grand scheme of things. I saw an episode of the Jeffersons. Do you remember that sitcom? George Jefferson went to see a psychologist. He needed some help in his marriage. And his psychologist's reputa- or his recommendation was... You need to get another woman on the side. And he said, are you kidding me? And he came down hard on her. said, I'm a married man. How dare you? Well, you know what? That reaction was so unusual for me to hear in today's world that it caught my attention. And yet that's how long ago it hasn't been since we had more traditional God-fearing, God-honoring values than we have today. And the Jeffersons, I believe, was the late 1970s or so and into the 80s. It's like someone said to me not long ago, it's truly like we are living in the twilight zone 
And I don't know if you feel that way, but I definitely do. We may then start wondering, God, Father, where are you in the midst of all this craziness? God is all-knowing, so surely it's not a surprise to Him. But where are you? What are you up to? You see, that's the difference between those of us who love the Lord. We're not content to just watch what's going on. No, we want to know where is God in the midst of of this? And how does God interpret this? And how are we therefore to interpret it too? We have to know what is His plan in the midst of this craziness we're currently living in and what is the right response. There are many places in Scripture we could go to consider this topic tonight. God's plan and our response. But I want to go somewhere with you that a book of the Bible that we probably don't go to that often. And it's the book of 2 Thessalonians. Let's make sure this is going to work. They said aim it up there. And it worked. Good. It's a very short book. Just three chapters. It was written in approximately A.D. 51 or 52. Shortly after the book of 1 Thessalonians was written. And it's assumed that it was also written while Paul and his companions were still in Corinth. We'll talk about why we know that. Did you know though that 1 and 2 Corinthians are probably the earliest two books we have in the entire New Testament? That's where we're going to be looking tonight and actually only in the first chapter. But before we dive into 2 Thessalonians, I want to take a moment and give you some background of 1 Thessalonians because it's important that we have the context to understand what's going on when we come to 2 Thessalonians. Paul and his companion Silas, as some scriptures or some translations note, Silvanus, that's Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had visited Thessalonica during Paul's second missionary journey, which we read about in the book of Acts, chapter 17. To set up the context, I want us to read the first 10 verses of Acts 17 because that tells us about when they visited Thessalonica and when the church there was established. So let's read together. Now when they, that being Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Amphipolis, I should have said, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now notice, but the Jews who were not persuaded, watch what they did. They became envious. They took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Those Jews who didn't believe and were not persuaded, they started doing what they could to prevent Paul, Silas, and Timothy from continuing to preach in Jesus' name. But they didn't find them. So they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here to Thessalonica too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary, different to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king than the one we've historically known and believed in. 
And so they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security, back one screen. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived there, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. That was the custom, to go into the synagogue. But now notice, they had to leave secretly and earlier than they probably wished they had left. They had to leave these new Christians behind. And we're going to see that the church thankfully began to grow. But those points are important to keep in mind that they probably had to leave earlier than they would have wanted to. To understand and put this in even more context, let's talk about Thessalonica for a minute. It was the capital and the largest city of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was one of the wealthiest and most flourishing trade centers in the Roman Empire. That was because the most important Roman highway went right through Thessalonica. And furthermore, it was a seaport city. So it was an important part, an important place in that time and day. It was recognized as a free city. Well, what does that mean? That means that Thessalonica was allowed to kind of rule itself and it was exempt from most of the restrictions that were placed on other cities by Rome. But with that freedom came a price. And here's the price. They were subject to all kinds of pagan influences around them. This new group of believers, this new church, they were in the midst of an increasingly pagan society. And they had to try to figure out how to navigate their faith in the midst of that. Does that sound familiar? That's one reason we're here tonight in this text. Because you and I are living in a similar kind of place, an increasingly pagan society, not God-fearing people. That's where the church in Thessalonica was established. And as we read, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they had to leave suddenly because they were being persecuted. But it's important to know this. They were doing well when they left, but they were still babes, young in the faith. And so Paul wanted to make sure that they were going to grow and continue doing well. He didn't want them to do like the seed that we read about, the parable of the seed that fell onto the stony or rocky soil. Remember that one? It sprang up immediately, but what happened to it? It quickly died because it had no roots. And Paul wanted to make sure that would not happen to this church. And so that concern is what prompted Paul to write 1 Thessalonians. He wrote it to help them grow in the faith, to comfort and encourage them so that they would know for sure that Christ is going to return. And he wrote with great compassion. He didn't come down with a heart and heavy hand. Why didn't you know this? You should know he wrote with love and compassion because they were young in the faith and he didn't want them to be discouraged in any way. That's 1 Thessalonians. Now, here's what happened. After they got Paul's letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians, they read him talking about, well, Christ is coming back. And guess what they did as a result? They started thinking, well, we might as well not work or we can just sit back and wait. God's going to return. Christ is coming back. And they misunderstood what Paul was trying to tell them in that first letter when he said, yes, he's coming back. But they didn't understand that it was going to perhaps be a while yet before he did. 
they became idle. They quit working. They felt that it was going to happen at any moment. So what's the point? And I think it's possible for even us today to think, Christ is going to make all of this right. You know, why, why do we need to worry about any of it? Let's just relax and wait. I heard someone say just the other day that some silence, what was it? Not, not all silence is golden. Some silence is yellow. Isn't that good? Yellow standing for fear or timidity. We can't give in to the same temptation to sit back and watch all of this happen. So Paul wrote them again within a year so that he could clarify what he was trying to say in 1 Thessalonians, specifically to help correct the misunderstanding they had about Christ's second coming. And I think we see similarities today. What I would like us to do tonight is to spend our time walking through these first verses in chapter 1, the entire chapter. Let's look at it verse by verse because I think within that chapter we will see what is God's plan in this world. It hasn't changed. And not only that, but what is the right response that you and I, just the way he was encouraging the Thessalonians, we should be responding in the same way. I'll put the verses up here and you're welcome to read along as well in your own in your own Bibles or tablets, whatever you're using, cell phones. Verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice who's writing the letter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. This is why people think that it must have been written while they were still in Corinth, because Paul's companions were still with him. Verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that 2 Thessalonians begins almost exactly the way 1 Thessalonians begins and when he wrote his first letter. I'd like to read to you the way 1 Thessalonians begins and you compare it with what you see up here and in your Bibles. Find the difference. Here we go. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you find the difference? It's one word. What is the word? He replaces the Father with our Father. When the Father is referenced in the New Testament, it typically either means the Father of Christ or our Father as believers. And the inclusion of the word our in this context shows us that that's what he's doing. He's, he's helping them realize God is our Father as fellow believers, fellow Christians. He also asks that, that they be blessed with grace and peace. He often did that. We can go back to the beginning of Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon or Philippians. They all start with him wishing for grace and peace. And that's just the beginning. Let's look now at verse 3. He says to these Thessalonians, We are bound, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Because it is, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Another version puts this 
verse this way. Listen to the difference. Dear brothers, giving thanks to God for you is not only the right thing to do, but it is our duty to God because of the really wonderful way your faith has grown and because of your growing love for each other. Notice Paul begins his letter by complimenting them. And there's a lesson for us there too. Someone once said, for every criticism you give someone, you better give at least three attaboys. He starts by finding something positive to say to them. Now notice why he says they are giving thanks to God for these Thessalonians. First of all, because of the wonderful way their faith, and you see it underlined, because of the wonderful way their faith has grown. And secondly, because of their growing love for each other. Remember, in John 13, 35, it says, By this, Christ said, will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's interesting if we go back to 1 Thessalonians, by the way, chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, these two things... Their faith and their love is exactly what he was praying for. Listen to verse 10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, Night and day, Paul writes, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Well, there it is. Now he's giving thanks for it. And secondly, verse 12 of chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So it's interesting, that was his prayer he wrote in 1 Thessalonians, and now we come to 2 Thessalonians, and he's giving thanks for those very two things. Notice Paul says too, we are bound. We are bound to thank God always for you. In other words, they were obligated. We're bound to thank God. It's not out of a sense of duty but by gratitude for God for the divinely inspired growth that had happened among these Thessalonians. A gratitude, as someone wrote, so overwhelming that one has little choice but to give thanks for it. Friends, are we growing in our faith and love for each other as we're living in the midst of a society and a world that is more hostile toward the things that we love and believe to be true? the things that God says are true, we need to be doing what Paul is doing here, and that is encouraging one another, looking for the good and giving thanks to God, praying that we will find faith and hope among our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 4, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So in the prior verse, he said, we thank God for you. But then he says, we're bragging about you too. We're not just thanking God, but we're telling other people about you. He's saying to the Thessalonians, your level of spiritual growth is especially impressive. Do you see why? There are two reasons given in this verse why he says, you're worth bragging about. First of all, because of the difficult circumstances that they faced and they were living in. Now, what are we talking about? Well, remember that when the church in Thessalonica was established, they were being heavily influenced in a, in a very anti-God culture. And yet they were remaining true. They were a small church in a large and overwhelmingly pagan society. 
a church that was under constant pressure to conform to the norms of that society. But they didn't do it. Paul's bragging about them to the other churches. Look what they're going through, in other words. And yet, they are persevering. In particular, he talks about two things that I I mentioned a moment ago. Number one, their patience. He's bragging to other churches because they're being patient. Uh, The English Standard Version translates this as steadfastness. The NIV calls it perseverance. In other words, they weren't giving up in the midst of the difficulties that they were facing. Instead, they were enduring them. But not only were they enduring them, guess what? They were growing. They were being patient. They were enduring and growing. And then secondly, their faith. He's bragging about them because of their patience and their faith. Their faith in God. It was remaining strong. It was unwavering in spite of all they were going through. I want to suggest to you that in this one verse alone, we see the two keys to responding appropriately in this world in which we live today. Number one, to remain patient. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And secondly, to remain faithful. Regarding patience, James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 say, My brethren, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because you can know that the testing, the trying of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete, mature, Lacking nothing. Some of you will recognize the name Clydetta Fulmer. She, uh, her father was Clyde Fulmer, a longtime preacher in this area. Clydetta worships at the University Church and also sometimes at the um, church at Hope Hall. She lives down in Snowden. Her line of work is sculpting. That's what she's always done full time. She's been a full time sculptress. Well, she told the story one time about finishing this sculpture. I think it was a life-size statue. And she had to take it to the foundry in Virginia so that they could cast it in bronze from the clay. Her mother was with her. They were traveling on a station wagon back then and had this thing she had worked on for at least six months. And someone rammed them from behind. And she said, when I opened the back of that vehicle that station wagon, and I looked at that clay with all those shards of glass in what I had worked so diligently on for so long. She said, I thought to myself, count it all joy. All she could do was go back to her studio and start again. Brothers and sisters, count it all joy when we fall into temptations and persecutions, because that is working to improve our patience. And then he says in this verse, the other key is to remain faithful. Psalm chapter 1 tells us that for the godly man or woman, his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he or she meditates day and night. If the only Bible we're getting is when we're together in this building. We're playing diet church. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the word of God. People will say, yeah, but I can't understand it. Let me ask you this. When the doctor prescribes you medicine, do you understand how it works before you take it? No. And friends, it's the same way with this. There is, this is not a magical book, but there is something supernatural about it because of who wrote it. And when our eyes come in contact with the words on these pages, something transforms us. I can't explain it, but I know it's true. I've experienced it, and you do too. We are no match for Satan apart from our regular study of this word. That's why we, we can read it and get something different from it every time. This is not just a regular book. Don't you know God knew if we could get it all in one read, we would just put it on the shelf and forget it. But it's not that way because this is the mind of God. In the midst of our suffering, we should grow in our patience and faithfulness knowing that God is going to use our trials for our good and for His glory. That's what He's going to do. Now, verse 5. Regarding the trials and tribulations that these Thessalonians were undergoing, Paul says these trials and tribulations are manifest or plain evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. We can become so disheartened at the sufferings and things that we endure that we can question, God, where are you? Why, in other words, why do bad things happen to good people? You know the name Dr. James Dobson. He wrote a book one time called When God Doesn't Make Sense. Why do little innocent ones sometimes die? Why do we pray and not always get the answer we want? You know what the conclusion of his book is? Three words. It's as if God is saying, just trust me. Just trust. Trust me, his ways are not our ways. We can know, I love the way Brother Cecil May says it. God is going to do right by us. We don't have to worry about that. He's going to do whatever the right thing is. He's worthy of our trust. But Paul says in this verse that their suffering is plain evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Well, what in the world does that mean? How do you mean, Paul, that when we suffer as Christians in this world, that some way that's showing that God's judgment is righteous and He's saying, yes, that's what I'm saying, and here's why. Because the God of the universe is not going to always let it be this way. When we suffer as followers of His, it means that there is a day of judgment coming. It's not always going to be this way. Suffering for the kingdom is evidence of the genuineness of our Christianity. You know, when people see us, everything is going well, and they think, well, it's easy to obey God then. But when they see us in suffering and trials and tribulations, then they're looking, and that shows the genuineness of our faith in God and our commitment to Him. Our sufferings prove that God is righteous, for He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. When we suffer for God's sake. We're showing that we can be counted worthy. When we suffer and endure it. 
Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 say this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Even in the midst of our sufferings, we can know that God remains true and fair. Verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. In other words, the tables will eventually turn. I have thought in recent years, and more so now than ever, you can probably look at the way the world, and by the world I mean, you know, we're to be in the world but not of the world. So I'm referring to people who have no love for God, desire for God, hunger for God, thirst for God. Not on their radar. You can generally look at the way the world is living. And if we'll just do the exact opposite, we'll be following God's will. Right? Because that's how anti-far away from God the people of the world tend to be. And my friends, you know who has the loudest voice in this country? The loudest voice of all? It's the M-E-D-I-A. The media. And it dawned on me not long ago, if the people who have the loudest voice that are producing the media that we are absorbing through all our devices and ways, if they are not people of integrity and ethics and God-fearing people, we are in trouble. And that's where we are. Because they have the loudest voice. Why do I say that? Because they're the ones who we listen to most. Someone once said, yeah, but I can watch. And, and I had a friend a day or two ago who said, you know, I've been watching this sitcom. It's got a little bit of bad stuff in it now. I can, but, but sometimes I do wonder if I should be watching it. Well, let me ask you this. If the media doesn't have influence over us, then tell me this. Why would advertisers pay millions of dollars for a 30-second commercial? It does have influence. And we need to be mindful that we are inviting people into our homes and into our minds that we might never invite in person. We have to be very careful to take care of ourselves in that regard. The tables will eventually turn. There's going to be a day of separation, the Bible teaches. And it will be in God's perfect timing. Remember the Bible talks about in Matthew chapter 25 how Jesus at the end of time is going to separate the sheep from the goats. The Bible also talks about and Jesus gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the whole principle is... That right now, in this time in which we're living, we're all here together. And that's part of God's plan. At the end of time is when it will be separated and we will know who was on what side. It is not in any way that we take joy in thinking about the damnation of other people. Not at all. Just like God, we long for everyone to come to repentance and be saved. But it does help us know that it won't always be this way. The sufferings that we endure are temporary. Verse 7, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. One day everyone will stand before God. Wrongs will be righted. Judgment will be pronounced and evil will be terminated. A day of rest for us is coming. 
For those who have already passed on in Christ, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that they will be raised first. Then those of us who remain will then be caught up in the clouds with them and we will be forever with the Lord. Don't you love the fact that Paul includes, where is it? I think I'm behind a bit. Right there. Don't you love that he included the two words with us? He's going to give you who are troubled rest with us. In other words, on that day, we will see Paul and Silas and Timothy and all the other faithful saints. Because we have believed the testimony that we have read and understood to be true. Going on, verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul could be talking about two different groups of people here. One could be pagan Christians or Gentiles. And the other could be those who had the opportunity, but for whatever reason, never obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. Of course, we know he's talking about hell. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 Just imagine the one chance you have to meet your maker on that day. Only to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Some people believe that there's not really a hell. Well, this verse says that there is. How hot will it be? Someone once said, we'd better hope it's real flames. Because if it's anything else, it's worse. What's going to happen to people who do not accept the Word of God and the call of God during their lifetime, this verse tells us that they, first of all, are going to be punished in everlasting hell. Secondly, they will be forever separated from the presence of the Lord. And thirdly, they will never get to see the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Some people dread that day. We don't have to. Others look forward to it because we have believed the testimony. No one's going to be in heaven by accident. Those who live their lives for Him are going to look forward to it because of all He has done for us. I do want to make one other point quickly here. With the same, and we're talking about the fear of the day when the Lord will return. But as Christians, I want to make very clear that the Bible plainly teaches that we can know in this life that we are saved. We don't have to live in fear. My sweet grandmother lived to be 102 and a half, and I'll never forget her asking me one time, Art, do you think I've done enough to go to heaven? And I said to her, if, if you haven't, none of us stand a chance. But my understanding has changed since then to know. And it makes me a little upset and angry to think about. She missed it somewhere. To think that it was about doing. And getting it right. Yes, we try. But Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 10. Clearly say if we think the day is ever going to come. When we're going to be good enough. And get it good enough that God's going to say, yes, now you're good enough. The scriptures say you've missed the whole point of the Christian life. Because in essence, if we could do that, then it would be like saying to God, thanks, but no thanks, God. I can do this on my own. 
It is in our sinfulness that He came and saved us. It's not about perfection, friends. It's not about perfection. It's about our direction. A sweet, precious lady, if you knew her, you'd love her. She said to me about a year ago, she said, I've tried to live the Christian life and I cannot do it. Very moral person. But I said, listen. And we were studying. She became a Christian. I said, is it your heart's desire more than anything else to obey God? She said, oh, yes, Dr. Art. More than anything, I want to obey Him. But she was realizing how often she failed. And I said, then listen. If you can honestly say that's your heart's desire, then you are walking in the light. And His blood continues to cleanse us. It can't be perfection. Because in that very same context of 1 John, He says, if you say you have no sin, talking to Christians, you make Him, make him a liar and you're deceiving yourself. We've got to watch our hearts and make sure, I mean, we may slip and slide along the way to heaven's gate. But is our heart's desire there? Then friends, we're walking in the light. Verse 11, two more verses quickly. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. The chapter ends with Paul asking that they would be counted worthy of this calling. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about the calling of the gospel. As Christians, our calling is to become like Christ. We are saved at the point we become Christians and obey the way to do that. And the rest of our time here on this earth is not sitting back and relaxing. It is what the Bible refers to as the process of sanctification. This life is the only preparation we have for eternity. We will go through no other training before we walk through heaven's gate. It's all about learning to let God mold us and conform us more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that's God's plan for every one of us. Will we ever be perfect? No. But we keep ourselves working to do what we can and trusting His grace to save us the rest of the way. We can know with confidence. A friend asked me recently, do you, do you know you're going to heaven when you die? I said, yes, I do. I couldn't always say that. He said, well, I'm so glad. I, I can't say I'm there yet. He's in his late 60s. We can know. We can know that we're walking in the light. And finally, verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Another version says this verse this way, then everyone watching the way we live will be praising the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the results they see in you. Now notice, and your greatest glory will be that you belong to Him. Paul said, I count everything as dross, as loss for the excellence of knowing God. What is God's plan and our response let me give you some minor points here or, or simple points as we conclude. Number one, the current condition of our nation and our world comes as no surprise to God. He knows all. He knew this would happen before the foundation of the world. Secondly, as children of God, we can expect suffering 
and persecution. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says that all of us who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Friends, we've had it good. Since the foundation of this world, our nation has been built on the principles of a God-honoring, God-fearing nation. But did you know it wasn't that way for the early Christians? We've had it better in some ways than they did. And we, we don't know what we're going to face yet. But we know the right response is to be patient and remain faithful. Romans 8.18 tell us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What is the right response? We must patiently continue doing good. There's that word, patience. That's Romans 2, 6 through 9. We must count it a privilege to suffer for His name's sake. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, that says that when those apostles were beaten and said, stop teaching, they went right out and started doing it again. And the Bible says they were counted, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. We must remain faithful to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Be faithful unto death. And finally, we don't know what we may be in for yet. But we do know how the story ends. There will be a day of reckoning as we've talked about coming. And we know who wins in the end. What we must do is keep our eyes on Jesus. What is the appropriate response to God's plan of what's happening in our world? Two things. Be patient and be faithful. God bless you. Thank you.